Hello and a big summer welcome to this month's Baltic Triangle podcast with me, Mick Ord. And me, Mark Reeson. In this month's podcast, we'll be hearing from two very different movers and shakers from Liverpool City region, both inspirational in very different ways. We hear from Jamie Blenner-Hessett, the young MD of Hassett Homes, whose mission is to build a sustainable future through the homes and communities they build. And they're not just going through the motions either. When we look at the market, nothing, you know, you look at a 1930s house compared to today, they're very similar. They're not built for today's way of life. And whether that's a 21-year-old or, you know, a 50-year-old, you know, we create, uh, we create and build different types of houses, different sizes in the different areas, but it will, you know, how we like to describe it is for today's people. And we'll be hearing from Asa Murphy, whose 20-year career as a singer collapsed when lockdown hit last March. So he turned his talents to becoming a children's author with remarkable results. What happened was the phone started ringing with cancellations. And then I started panicking because it was happening every day, two or three times a day. Hello, Asa, it's this venue, we're gonna have to cancel. Hi, Asa, I booked you for me wedding, I'm gonna have to cancel. And it was like I was putting crosses through everything. And in the end, my whole livelihood disappeared within two weeks. So it was like, what on earth am I gonna do? So it looks like we've got a packed episode here, but uh, first maybe we can hear from our friends at Baltic Broadband, Mick. Yeah, a big thank you to Baltic Broadband Limited. They're a business-only network, so no consumer traffic clogging up the network during business hours. The fastest broadband around, a little bit more on them a bit later. Thanks again to Baltic Broadband for uh, all the sponsorship and help they give us. Uh, so Mick, being around the Baltic today, there's quite a lot of buzz. Uh, there's a lot of traffic, a lot of activity, and there's even a little film set going on by the looks of it. Yeah, yeah. I saw Martin Freeman, the famous actor Martin Freeman before. They're filming um, The Responder, uh, a crime series. I'm guessing, I don't know for sure, I'm guessing it'll be out next year. And the author, the guy who wrote the novels on which the crime series is based, is Tony Schumacher. Um, who we're hoping to have on the next podcast or maybe the one after that. Really successful series of novels. He's done really brilliantly. And to get the likes of Martin Freeman in a TV drama is really is really fantastic for him. And, and Liverpool, as you say, the, the, the cameras are everywhere up Greenland Street and Jamaica Street this morning. Um, I think I'm right in saying, you probably know this better than me, that Liverpool is probably the most filmed city outside of London, I think. It's certainly one of the most filmed. I mean, uh, in recent statistic would be uh, there's th- over 1,300 filming days a year in Liverpool, which roughly works out to be two or three shoots a day. So, uh, yeah, there's loads going on, and it's really, really important to the economy of the city that it happens. And th- those big studios um, in the old Little Woods building, I mean, I don't know when that's going to be completed because there was a fire there, wasn't there, and all that. But I think they are going to complete it and what, when that is here. That'll put our name on the map even more, won't it, you know? Yes, indeed. Our first port of call today, Mick, is Hassett Homes. The founder and MD, Jamie Blenner Hassett, is just 25 years old. But for him, sustainability is at the very heart of his business. Now, lots of companies nowadays claim to have environmentally friendly policies, but as we know for many, it's just an exercise in box ticking. This is certainly not the case with Hassett Homes. Jamie is 100% focused on creating truly sustainable homes, as he told me when I met up with him last week. Hassett is a disruptor and an innovator in an industry and marketplace which has not changed for over a century. And our purpose is to modernise this industry we're in, with sustainability being at the forefront of that. 
there's a lot of businesses which are going down the sustainability route now, but they're only doing that because they're having to, to change to what the people want. We were built on that, and that's what we want to bring into the market. So you've put sustainability at the heart of your business then, by the sounds of it. So w- what does that look like? How, how does your sustainability work? So we've got a three-phase process, which we have to roll out over a period of time because the, the technology and the industry is not there yet on some of those phases. But initially, it's about getting our business to be carbon zero, you know, operating with paperless systems in the office, you know, company cars being uh, electric, um, and also including a lot of biodiversity into that, enhancing the environments we live in. We've got to uh, enhance biodiversity in nature. The, the second phase is moving into uh, our homes operating at carbon zero, which we can do and which we're rolling out later this year, which is going to be fantastic. And the whole team have spent you know, the last three years uh, working on this. And how that looks like is it's a, it's a home which is not reliant on, on uh, gas to heat it. It's not reliant on dirty energy to, to power it. Uh, and then the, the third phase, which will take a bit longer to implement, but is the final piece in the puzzle, is to make the production and the construction phase as carbon zero as possible, which is going to be tough, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a direction we need to move in. And in order to do that, we would have to change the materials we use, the methods on how we produce those materials, the methods on how we put those materials together and get them to site. But something we're working on and we don't want to roll that phase out yet until we've perfected that, which will be further down the line. So that's, that's our vision of a sustainable house building industry and a sustainable future because the, the, this industry, in addition to how we live in a domestic way with domestic homes and domestic vehicles, accounts for 30 to 40% of all carbon emissions produced in the UK. So by the time we've rolled out all three phases, that's a huge amount we can eliminate from a problem which is on you know, the world stage every single day, which we, and, and it's not getting any better. So that's, what is at, that, that's, that's, the, that's what's at the heart of our business right now. So that's going to require a hell of a lot of innovation so, and also collaboration with partners that feel the same way you do. Do you see that as being a challenge or do you see it as being something that will have to happen anyway? Uh, I think it'll have to happen. Uh, I think government policy will force that to change in due course. But, you know, when you're looking at 2025, 2030 and 2050 uh, year uh, targets, it's not good enough. We need to bring that further. And hence why we pride ourselves on being an innovator and disruptor, because we're doing half of that right now. We're rolling that out by the end of the year. Um, and people will follow just like all industries follow, but we want to be at the forefront. We want to be known as the, you know, the one who, who changed the tide and, and pushed people faster to get it done because we've only got one planet and we can't change it, can we? Talk to me about your journey to get to where you are today then, Jamie. It's been very exciting because I love what I do and I think that's a really important thing. But it's also been very difficult because this is an industry which has got so many external factors which influence the business. It's got so many obstacles, so many roadblocks. And uh, it's taken time to get into the market because, you know, especially being a young business, uh, people don't take you seriously at first. And in order to, you know, get opportunities and to advance in this industry, a lot of it is based on trust. Um, So, but that's a catch-22. You know, people can't trust you until you deliver but you can't deliver until people trust you. So it has been difficult, but we've pushed through that now. Um, 
and I'd almost, you know, explain it as a, a good analogy as a an aircraft on a runway. Those that initial part's very, very difficult to take off, but once you're up in the air, it's very easy to increase the altitude, and that's the stage we're at now. You're very modest, but you this is your fourth year as a business, and uh, you're a very young man to be in the position that you're in at the moment. That must have been challenging in itself. It can be strange because this is an industry which is, you know, a lot of the big house builders, the board of directors are all in the 50s and 60s, so it is very strange. And, and not only that, you know, most of the people you deal with, you know, across the supply chain, from suppliers to consultants and everything else, you know, people are a lot older. So it is a bit strange walking into a meeting where the client is, is considerably younger. But I think they see that as a positive as well because they see that it's not, um, you know, it's not just a normal meeting they're going to have. It's not just a, another normal development they're going to design out or build. It's it's different. And they, they can see that innovator and disruptor uh, coming out in those meetings because, you know, and, and for them it's something exciting because it's not just run of the mill. You're obviously a very driven person. Okay, you've obviously got a clear idea of where you want to be. It's always been in me, and I just didn't want to settle for for something less than that. And it that is is driven by believing in yourself and believing in your dreams, and it can be done. And you know, whilst we're only young, and the, the, whilst this business is only young, and it's only in its first uh, number of years, it has proved that with persistence, you can you can follow through on your dreams and and. Um, but it's not just motivation. You've got to have a, a passion. You've got to be driven. And you've just got to keep pushing through and know that one day you'll, you'll get to that end goal. Jamie, who do you think you build homes for? For us, um, when we look at the market, nothing, you know, you look at a 1930s house compared to today. They're very similar. They're not built for today's way of life. And whether that's a 21-year-old or, you know, a 50-year-old, you know, we create... Um, we create and build different types of houses, different sizes in the different areas. But it will, you know, how we like to describe it is for today's people. Talk to me about some of the sites that you've worked on and built on already and why you're particularly proud of them. We've spent a lot of time, you know, working through them. We've not just put uh, a set of house types together. We've really considered it. And that's what this whole past, you know, three, four years has all been about. In addition to the research and development we've put in place, putting furniture layouts in the office to see if these rooms would actually work for these houses and, and you know, taking into account every last detail. So, you know, when these, when, when, when these homeowners move in and when future homeowners move in, they'll get, that, they'll get that feeling that, wow, this has really been thought out. Every single last nook and cranny in the house has been thought about. But the, the, these are homes which is a, a place which is bright and airy you know the it, it 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 generates a huge sense of well-being when you walk through them with you know huge openings so there's lots of light flooding in uh, and and the layouts are adapted for for today's way of life but the developments themselves uh and, and the outside areas they're full with a whole raft of ecology features to bring the wildlife which is such an important thing to us into our developments as well as uh, extensive landscape strategies because there's far too many developments which just just look like a concrete jungle and we don't want that you know we want you know places which is full of greenness and squirrels running across the roads and hedgehogs and everything else and, and plenty of wildlife and birds and it is a real sense of calm when you come onto one of our developments. So one question that I have to ask you, Jamie, is is why Liverpool? What is it about Liverpool that's so close to your heart and, and why have you set your business up here? 
Liverpool's a fantastic place. It's a wonderful city. And obviously, it's my hometown as well. So what a great place to start in your hometown, in the areas you know. And, you know, you can, after a number of years, you can look back and think, wow, you know, our team's done that. And what a, what a fantastic stamp we've put on our hometown. A big part of it as well is, you know, we want to bring the innovation to the northwest first, which is, you know, as mentioned, it's something we're, we're, we're working on and, and spending a lot of time and efforts and research and development to bring that to it. So it's a great place to start, isn't it? So talk to me about the future then, Jamie. Um, so at the moment, we've got sites in Eccleston, Orton, Formby, Hale, um, which is South Liverpool, um, West Derby, uh, and some strategic ones in World as well. So it's, it's a nice spread across the Liverpool city region. So it's not just focused in one area of Liverpool, it's, it's, um, it, it's right the way across the board. But certainly for the next five or ten years, we'll just be focusing on the northwest to, to build a presence there and roll out that innovation across our area. And how can people keep up to date with what's happening with the Hassett Homes? Uh, we've got our website, HassettHomes.com. Um, or on social media, you know, all our social medias are simply just uh, Hassett Homes. Um, you know, we post uh, regular updates and there's some really exciting content on there. So I'd certainly recommend giving it a follow. Excellent. Jamie, it's been a pleasure to talk to you as ever, and uh, I can't wait to drop in and see you on site at some point soon. Great. Lovely to be here, Mark. So that was Jamie Blenner-Hassett there from Hassett Homes, and uh, a lot in common with Neil Maxwell from Changing Streams, who we heard from last month, Mark. Um, We must get the two of them together. 100%. Uh, For me, he puts sustainability at the heart of his business and, and, and all power to him as well because it can't be easy for him to be 25 years old going into some of those board meetings. Yeah, well, as he said, most of the people he's mixing with are, let's face it, you know, middle-aged and older business people. Um, but I hope he does manage to disrupt the market. I really hope he does. I mean, he he doesn't seem to have any um, inhibitions about going for a really, a really difficult goal. And... Um, yeah, good luck to him. And, and if anyone listening wants to know more about Jamie, we'll give his contact details in the notes accompanying this podcast. So what have you been up to? The singer Asa Murphy will be known to many people. Um, he has a well-established career as a singer, writing his own material and also covering the classic swing singers, that's easy for me to say, like Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett and the rest. He's also got a show on BBC Radio Merseyside, but... Like many entertainers and artists, when lockdown hit last year, he'd lost all of his bookings, all of his work. The concerts, the weddings, the parties, all cancelled in a two-week period. Well, Aza's got a family to support, like many of us, and no other saleable skills to fall back on. So, he switched his creative talents to writing, and has written two books for children which have been really successful. In fact, so much so, in fact, that he's going to combine the two careers now, singing and writing. It's a far cry from Kirkdale, where Aza and his seven brothers were born and raised in a Liverpool Irish household, and his early days as a vending machine operative. I started off, when I left school, I became a, a care worker for a while, and then I got a job filling vending machines at Liverpool University, And I used to go in there and fill up 18 machines a day with Mars bars and marathons and crisps. And I I, I used to think, I don't want to be doing this. I want to be a singer. But I didn't really have an in because we've been from such a large family. I never had the opportunity to go to drama school or anything like that. That just wasn't an option. That's seven brothers. 
Yeah, yeah. Brought up in Kirkdale in Barlow's Lane next door to a well-known pub called Lulu's. And I just didn't... It wasn't my background because we were in a showbiz family. My dad was a joiner for the corpy. My mum was a very hard-working housewife. So anyway, over the years, I had different jobs and then I got married. And then I, I went into the care work. And I used to say to my wife, uh, you know, I want to do this singing. So she said, well, you need to do something about it then. So I made a little demo CD of uh, three swing songs because that was my passion was big bands, as you know, Mick was swing music. So I sent it into BBC Radio Merseyside and Billy Butler played it on the show called Stars in Your Ears with Lynn Staunton and Bobby Socks. And somebody said to me, hey, I just heard you singing on Radio Merseyside. And I said, what, what was it? And he said, it was um, Up the Lazy River by Bobby Darren and everyone was raving about it. And Lynn Staunton said, oh, this lad's got a great future, etc." So then, by pure coincidence, my wife Kelly had taken it into the hairdressers where she works in Crosby Village to play for her boss. And the girls said, oh, this ace has made this. And having his hair done was the owner of a restaurant, cabaret restaurant called the Barbacoa in Crosby. And he said, I love that. He said, tell him to come and see me and I'll give him a gig. So Kelly come home and said, you've got to go and see Gordon at the Barbacoa. I had never had a gig, so I went to see him. He said, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. I want to put a night on of all swing music. So you can do next Saturday, but I won't pay you. If you're any good, I'll book you the following Saturday. So I said, all right, fair enough. So I went and bought, I borrowed the money. I think it was off my mum and dad to go and buy a PA system and the gear they needed. I put my act together. I got my mate, Kenny, everyone knows Ken, little Ken, to help me on the night we set up. It was phenomenal. It was a great night. The barbacoa was sold out and it was like nerves, but we had such Was a it with backing night. tracks? Just backing tracks at the time, yeah. But it was great. The audience response was so good that he booked me the next week and he, he paid me. But what happened was the next week, because the word had got around, it was rammed. You couldn't get in. So I went on and sitting in the audience was a lady called Mary McNally whose husband is John McNally from The Searches. Their manager was a guy called Tony West. So she rang Tony West up and said, where are you? He said, I'm in the up. Get down to Barbacoa now. Come and hear this lad sing. It's swing. So I distinctly remember this guy coming in to the bar, very smart, immaculately dressed, stood at the bar, ordered an orange juice and just stood watching me. And I was thinking, who's he, you know? And uh, after the show, he approached me and said how much he enjoyed it. And he said, who represents you? I said, nobody. That's the only, the second gig I've ever done. First paid gig. Wow, wow. So he said, well, come and see me. I'd like to look after you. And for 11 years, Tony West was my manager. Wow. From that night, and I have Mary McNally, and obviously Kelly, to thank for that, you know. Um, so that was the beginning of my career as a big band swing singer. And from then, Tony booked me on all the big cruise ships. I traveled the world for seven years. You know, I did Ronnie Scott's in London. I did big, big gigs and I, I learned me trade first at the clubs and the pubs as every act should do. And then the quality of the work increased. And I mean, God rest his soul, Tony passed away. And then I sort of moved on to a new part of my career of sort of self-managing myself really.
So for the past 20 or so years, that's how you've earned your crust, is it? Cruises, clubs, pubs, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, for many years, yeah, I um, I'd, I'd had some very interesting gigs, you know, performing for Wayne Rooney and his wife on the, the night before their wedding for all the family with the band. And then what happened then, Mick, was obviously the backing tracks went then and I was able to, the, the quality of the gigs improved, to have a, a live swing band behind me working with a great musician called Danny Mannix, uh, who backed Matt Munro. Um, in, when he came to Liverpool and Danny put a band together for me and we, we did wonderful work we went all over the world over to the Radisson Hotel in Bahrain for New Year um, we went to America for me the thrill was Ronnie Scott's we topped the bill at Ronnie Scott's and it was a phenomenal we had people like Kevin Spacey in the audience and, wow. and uh, it was just amazing so over those years there were certain things that ticked off my bucket list Topped the bill at the Liverpool Empire. I sold out the Liverpool Philharmonic in my own right as well. And that happened because um, we booked the Philharmonic and um, ITV and BBC did a little documentary on me about coming from Kirkdale and then topping the bill at the Phil. And I went to London and on the way home, one of my brothers rang me up and said, I can't get a ticket for the Philharmonic. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, it's saying sold out. I said, it can't be sold out. He went, it is. And when I went on, it said... Sold out, and it was 1,822 tickets. Blimey, what year was this, Asa? That was uh, eight years ago. Wow. So, and what I did with that show, Mick, as well, it was my first foray into writing original material, so I wrote five songs for that show. So I wasn't just doing covers of great swing artists, which I love doing, like Bobby Darren, Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, Matt Munro. I also wrote original swing music as well, and I finished the show with a song called Proud and Strong, um, We Are Liverpool, which brought on the um, a, a choir at the end, all wearing red and blue scarves and singing Proud and Strong, We Are Liverpool. So that was a real big moment for me, career-wise, to, to do that. And, uh, and then, for me, then it was sort of like making the, the bread and butter work was, was, again, was performing at people's weddings and private dues and... You know, st I, I stopped doing the cruises when my kids were born because the, the life on a cruise ship is not really for a family man. No, no. You're away a lot and I, I just it just wasn't compatible. So I, I retired that part of my career and uh, then moved into just being in the UK mostly. So, I mean, when lockdown happened last year, what were your initial thoughts, Asa? Because this, is, this has been your meal ticket for nearly 20 years. Yeah, it, it, it's how I make me money every week, Mick. And at first I just thought, oh, this is just going to be something that blows over. And, you know, but what happened was the phone started ringing with cancellations. And then I started panicking because it was happening every day, two or three times a day. Hello, Asa, it's this venue. We're going to have to cancel. Hi, Asa, I booked you for my wedding. We're going to have to cancel. And... It was like I was putting crosses through everything. And in the end, my whole livelihood disappeared within two weeks. So it was like, what on earth am I going to do? It was I mean, what did you consider doing? What other can, uh, We'll get on to what you've actually done over the past 12 months. But what was it like that initial few weeks? Did you think, blimey, I'm going to be going back to filling Mars bars in the university ma machines? Yeah. yeah, and you know what? I always feel like I'm not... I'm not 
uh, overly proud. I was willing to do whatever it took to, so my family could survive. But also, I mean, there was remarks made by people in power that we should retrain, um, which I found to be quite insulting considering the fact that we were already trained. I was a professional entertainer. What was I going to do? I applied for jobs and was told I wasn't qualified, which was true, I wasn't. The only thing I could do was entertain on stage. So what I decided to do was then channel the uh, talents I had in another direction, which meant I wouldn't be in a public place singing because I couldn't do that because that world had disappeared. So sitting on the table in front of us now, there are two books yeah. for children that you've written. Yeah. Um, the Monkey With No Bum and The Adventures of Vinegar Jim. So were these books that you had in your mind or did you just sort of think of them in those first couple of months and thought, I'll write them? I mean, it's quite an amazing thing to do. Um, no, The Monkey With No Bum was a story I told my son Shay when he was a little boy, as we all do, Mick, with our kids. Tell us a story. So I learned it from my dad, really. My dad, when we were kids, would say, tell us stories about Andy the ant and uh, how he found his talent because he, he was chucked out the ant hill. I remember this as a kid. My dad had, I think it's the Irish thing, Mick, we talked about the Irish as great storytellers. My father, you know, my family all come from Cork in Ireland. He's a great storyteller. So I had this story I used to tell Shay about a monkey called Charlie who didn't feel he was good enough because he didn't have a bum like the other monkeys. So he ends up going on this journey and finding out something about himself that was, you know, a lesson. So I used to tell this to Shay and he'd say to me again, tell me the story. And then I told my nephew and he was like, his mum rang me up and said, he, he's driving me, you know, nuts with this story about a monkey. What is it? I said, oh, it's the monkey with no bum. Oh, you have to tell him. He'd come round, tell me the story of the monkey with no bum. So I thought, I should write this. So I sat down and I wrote the story. I found a wonderful illustrator in Liverpool called Helen Poole. Magnificent. She helped me to take my ideas and the sketches I'd drawn into life and the book alongside working alongside the charity Liverpool Heartbeat as well, who are a charity involved with anything to do with bettering the lives of children. They helped me to get the book uh, alive and, and released. And it was released in November of last year and it did unbelievably well. It was like flying out and it saved, uh, well, it saved us as a family wow. financially. I mean, you make it sound quite easy, but writing a book, whether it's for children or an adult, is not easy, is it? No, it's not because what you've got to do is you've got to have a, um, an interesting angle that parents and kids will react to. And for me, it was the fact that Kids love the fact that their parents are saying the word bum. You know, so when they read the book <laughs> yeah, yeah. in Charlie, because he wasn't, and he was the monkey with no bum, the kids roar with laughter. And I've had the, the chance to read this to children in schools and um, things like this, and the reaction is just brilliant because they just <laughs> love the fact there's an adult standing there saying, and he went the great big bum shop, and the kids roar with laughter. And, you know, so in that way, it had that, you know, and... Uh, that's been a nice experience, but what's good about it is when, when, after all that, they get to the end of the book and they actually learn a very valuable lesson about themselves as children and their own sort of, uh, you know, value as kids. 
And the adventures of Vinegar Jim. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, that came about because I'm a huge fan of Roald Dahl and um, Enid Blyton books, The Magic Faraway Tree, things like this. And I, I thought, I'd like to write a novel now that was maybe 100 pages long that would be for the more advanced reader, which was mostly dialogue and not illustrations. So I had this idea of, of this boy who likes vinegar on everything. So it was a little lad who puts vinegar on his chips, on his ice cream, <laughs> on his cornflakes. And I do a lot of me thinking when I walk the dog. So I would take Hugo out of a night for a walk about 10 o'clock and I would think these things and I'd think, oh yeah. So, and then I would get back and make notes. And then I just sat down and over three days, I said to my wife, don't disturb me. Because writing a book or is like, if somebody disturbs you, they burst the bubble. Yeah. It's very difficult to get it back. So over three days, I wrote the whole book. And, uh, and the story is about Jim. He makes a magic vinegar concoction, which enables him to do fantastic things. It falls into the wrong hands. And then he has to get it back. And then, you know, again, without spoiling the story, it's all about, again, he finds out things about himself. And it's again, it was released about four weeks ago and it's done really well. Oh, fantastic. I mean, so in addition to the, the two books for children that you've written over the past year, and as you say, they've, they've saved your family in many ways, you've also written a musical as well, haven't you? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I started writing musicals, Mick, uh, probably two years ago. I wrote the Buddy Holly uh, musical, Buddy Holly Lives, The Music Never Died, and that did fantastically well. And then I wrote the story of Bobby Darren, Mac the Knife, that also did well. And then I wrote my first original musical called Irish Annie's, which is set in a pub in Cork and harks back to the memories that I have as a child in Ireland and my dad and the characters that would drink in the local pub. And that opened up on March the 15th, two days before the lockdown was announced. So what happened was it opened up at the Epstein. It was sold out. The show went ahead and then we got fantastic reviews from all of the press, particularly the Irish Post, who sent a guy over, a guy called Jerry Malumby, great guy. He gave us the most wonderful review. And the future looked rosy for Irish Annie's and then we locked down. So, you know, until things get back to normal, that will happen. But then I thought, right, the kids need something. So I wrote The Monkey With No Bum, the musical. I submitted it to Bill Elms, who's a, a producer, you know, very clever guy in Liverpool, who was putting on the little theatre festival here in St. Luke's Church in July. And... They asked for submissions for shows, and I think they received, in Liverpool alone, 140 submissions for brand new pieces. Wow. And thankfully, mine was one of the 14 accepted. And so the musical will open up on July the 18th at the Little Theatre Festival in St. Luke's Bombed Out Church at 1.30. That will be the first showing of The Monkey With No Bum, the musical. It's... It's amazing how, um, and it's not true of everybody during lockdown. I mean, I've kind of ploughed on with what I do, which is kind of media training and PR, but you've completely changed your skill set, haven't you? Well, I had to, really. I had no choice. It was either do that or just sit in the house and, and complain and, you know, 
maybe moan about my lot in life. Um, but I thought, right, if I can redirect. And then what happened was, and by there's no disrespect to anybody who's been affected by coronavirus, because it's been awful for a lot of people. For me, it funneled me in a different way yeah. because I'm also a realist. I'm not getting any younger. And I've known you for a long time, Mick. Um, and when I was young, I was the up-and-coming swing singer in Liverpool, and everyone was like, oh, this lad's going to look at his Asa Murphy, the swing. And there must have been older entertainers then sort of thinking, this fella's going to push me off my page. Well, that's me now, because I'm the older entertainer, and behind me are excellent young performers, and, I, and I've, I'm all for that, because that was me one day. So what I need to do now is think, well, if those young lads are going to be getting the gigs that I got when I was 28, 29... I need to be thinking about Asa when he's 50. And that is me as a theatre writer, director, maybe performer to an extent, but I like this side of my future. So you're not giving up the singing because you've still got a good voice and you can still carry a tune and, and that, can't you? I hope so, yeah. I mean, I'm a, with the style of singing I've chosen, I was always of the opinion that um, the voice of Frank Sinatra and artists like that never really got into their peak until they were in their 50s. Frank Sinatra produced two wonderful albums, Songs for Swinging Lovers and In the Wee Small Hours of the Morning, and he was 55, and he never sang better in his life. So I'm six years off that. So I feel vocally I've still got things to learn. What happens, Mick, is that your choice of material changes. So when I was a young lad, I was jumping around to Splish Splash and Dream Lover and... Now I enjoy singing the songs that I couldn't sing when I was a young man, like, you know, when I was 17 and those songs of reflection as an older artist. So now I will always perform and continue to push maybe the original side of the music that I write. But I also want to see other artists. I'd love to cast other up-and-coming singers and say, right, I've written this. I'd like to give you the chance and see what they do. And I've done that. I've cast young Liverpool entertainers, a guy called Sam Conlon, who's a very talented lad. And I cast him in Bobby Darren, and he played a wonderful part. I cast him in Irish Annie's, and he's due to be cast in a big, big musical next year called uh, about John Hulley, the Liverpool gymnast, which will be next year. And Sam will play the principal part in that. So I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of seeing an up-and-coming entertainer making a good, a great job of something that the words, for example, on a script that you've written. You've also got a gig coming up at um, at the Grand Central Hall in yeah. Liverpool. Talk us up th through that, will you, Asa? Because you're going to be performing for the first time ever your own songs that you've yeah. written for other people. Yeah, that this one is a again. I don't think you ever um, stop doing new projects and. An important one for me was I always wanted to do an evening of, of my own material, no covers at all. And so that's what I'm doing on October the 22nd at Grand Central Hall in Liverpool. I'm doing a show called The Original Years because for many years I've written songs for other artists and they've recorded them. So I thought it's about time I sat there with my band. I've handpicked the musicians I've worked with for many years. They're the best in the business, I think, personally. Not just because they're from Liverpool, they are. And we're going we're gonna to perform 18 original songs that um, are a mixture of songs I've written for the theatre shows, songs I've written for other artists, and songs I've written during lockdown as well. One particular song I wrote, which went to number two on the Amazon charts, called Hope on the Rise. 
and it was all about the situation we were in and how that we needed to have a certain attitude to come out the other side of it. So there'd be songs like that as well. So you've had an eventful year in many ways. Who'd have thought 18 months ago that you'd have, you would have written two books, you'd have written a musical, you'd have had another one in the pipeline, you'd have changed your repertoire? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pushed me in an entirely different way because at the time I was still sort of fully booked up with anniversaries and weddings and birthday parties. And part of me was not becoming fed up with them because they're your bread and butter, but part of me was starting to think, what's next? And when the situation arose with the, the pandemic, I suddenly realised, well, now's, ta now's the time to think of your future as an entertainer. And, uh, and that's exactly what's happened with the, the books. There'll be a follow-up book to The Monkey With No Bum, um, which is called The Ant That Found His Talent. That's in production at the moment. There's going to be a follow-up to The Adventures of Vinegar Jim. And then uh, in September, there is a book released for very young nursery school children, which is a rhyming book called Boing Me Out. And that's currently being illustrated at the moment. So I'll end up at the end of this with about five books. You've also been doing gigs via Zoom, haven't you? Yeah, well, what happened was when the lockdown happened, the bo I was due to be at the Bald Hotel on Mother's Day and they rang me up and I got the inevitable phone call. Not their fault, you know, it was disappointing. Um, so I thought, well, on the Sunday, when I should have been at the bowl, I set all my equipment up in the back garden of my house and I put a note on social media saying, look, I'll be performing live. Get on, won't cost you anything. Just watch, it's Mother's Day. Uh, 17,000 people tuned in and I ended up singing for two hours and it was just crazy because on Facebook... That then as the notifications were coming down, I had people... In the end, I had to shout my father-in-law who lives with us to come down and to keep up with the comments. And he was shouting out someone from America, someone from Australia, the Philippines, Brazil, and all these people. So what I did was I decided then I would make this a weekly thing. So every Sunday, I wrote the song then, Hope on the Rise. Every Sunday, I would, at 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock, I would do a show called Hope on the Rise. And... I think I did 38 shows during the lockdown and I think we counted up in the end we hit over a quarter of a million people that had tuned in during the lockdown and then in the end I just finally said when things were coming to an end right this will be the last one thanks for your support see you on the other side and hopefully live in the flesh <laughs> as ever make a fascinating story there um I know how that feels to have a, a, a busy diary suddenly decimated by the uh, effects of, of COVID, etc. So for me, like a lot of creatives, you know, you were faced with quite a daunting prospect. Yeah, well, he had no money coming in. And, and to just say, right, I'm going to write a couple of children's books and the other musicals he spoke about as well. I mean, fair play to him, a lot of respect. And now he's actually, and I, I suspect this has happened with quite a few people, although, you know, probably not enough. Um, he's now developed another part of his career. He's not relying totally on singing because let's face it, there might be more lockdowns in the years to come. And so he's developed a new talent, which I think is remarkable, you know. And he's not a kid. Reinvention is an incredibly important skill to have, no more so than nowadays. And, and, and fair play to the guy. We know how hard it is to get novels published. You know, we, we, spoke, we spoke to Natalie about her books. 
So we know how hard it is, what an arduous journey it is to get books published. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I sent uh, two of his books to a nephew and niece of mine, and they loved it. They loved it, particularly the monkey's bum one. So <laughs> good on him. So, Mick, let's hear a bit, bit more about our sponsors, Baltic Broadband, again. Yeah, Baltic Broadband Limited, Liverpool-based. Uh, they provide ultra-fast internet to businesses, um, challenging the status quo with a new form of broadband service. Without phone lines or fibre, Baltic Broadband's wireless internet will transform your business. Um, upload speeds and download speeds are the same with Baltic Broadband. Um, they've got a range of home worker packages as well that will suit a lot of people. Um, and th- those, those packages are specifically de- uh, developed for home workers. They've got a 24-7 customer service, and as I say, they're based in Liverpool. If you want to find out more, there's a link in the notes accompanying this podcast as well. There's loads and loads of interesting stuff going on at Liverpool, so we've got some interesting things coming up, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Well, well as, as I said before, we're hoping to get uh, Tony Schumacher into the next podcast, or maybe the one after that. Um, he, they're, they're filming his novels around Liverpool now. Hopefully that crime series will be out sometime next year, I imagine. And we've got other stuff. So if people do want to get in touch with us with ideas for interviewees, then um, please do so. You can email us on... Info at BalticTrianglePodcast.com. That's info at BalticTrianglePodcast.com. Yeah, so let's enjoy the weather if we are getting good weather and we'll hopefully see you next time. All the very best and speak to you soon.